think it's quite fitting that uh, here on Mother's Day, uh, it happened that we're talking about mercy. Uh, so happy Mother's Day to all of you moms out there. Uh, when I think about uh, who often is the one who shows mercy, it's moms. <laughs> uh, they uh, seem to have a, an unrelenting way of sticking with us, uh, sticking by us. And even when we blow it and things are bad, uh, then there's our mother, and she sticks with us. And so for all of you moms, uh, happy Mother's Day. And thank you for the mercy that you have shown uh, as a mother. And I hope you get a special treat later, at least some time off, or uh, just to have a great uh, time this afternoon. Well, what does God require of us? What does he require of us as people, uh, as a church? Pastor Tom launched this question at us last week and kind of got us moving, uh, thinking about what it means to do justice. Uh, Many people commented, I think there was more there than just kind of teaching. I think God is really moving us as a church uh, into some deeper ways to walk uh, this path. And uh, I think it struck my heart that way as well. Uh, We prayed through that uh, on Wednesday night at the prayer gathering, that God's really calling us to live Uh, in a special kind of way, and we're going to be focusing in on uh, what does God require of us, and that is to uh, love mercy. What is uh, mercy? What is mercy? You know, mercy uh, is love in action. Mercy is love in action. It's sympathizing with where somebody's at, but it doesn't just stop with us identifying or sympathizing. It moves to that next place where we want to do something about the suffering or the difficulty or the trial that's going on in another person's life. God desires that we would, as a people, as individuals, see and recognize those who are hurting, those who are going through whatever it is, uh, that we would step in and uh, have compassion, feel that, but also then move into a place where we would uh, do something about it. And that's what mercy is. There was a study done at Princeton University about 30 years ago very interesting study, and this is what they wanted uh, to test out. This was their hypothesis. Uh, Being more religious does not make you more compassionate. That's what they wanted to test. Being more religious does not make you more compassionate. The working hypothesis was that thinking about and being primed with more religious and compassionate thoughts doesn't increase the chance that you'll help a random stranger, Good Samaritan style. So to go forward with their test, they had two groups of seminary students. Ah, got to pick the seminary students, right? So pick the seminary students. One group of seminary students was preparing a, a talk about a career and vocation, and they had them working on that. They had a separate group of seminary students who were preparing a sermon on the Good Samaritan. And so they had these two groups of people, and as they worked on those, part of uh, the experiment was after they worked on their talk, uh, one group on vocation and career, the other on the Good Samaritan, then they were sent across campus. Well, as they were to go across campus to answer some questions, they planted a man who was coughing profusely and laying on the ground in the pathway to where they were going to go, and then they were going to watch and observe what would happen. And so you have those who were preparing the talk on career and vocation. You had the other group of seminary students preparing the message on the Good Samaritan, and research found that there was no discernible, distinguishable difference in the response patterns of both of those uh, groups of people. 
Compassion, uh, mercy, is not uh, at its heart a knowledge thing. Merely giving more information to people doesn't make them uh, more compassionate. It doesn't directly transform us. And even in the verses that we're going to be reading here in Micah, we're going to see that neither does practicing uh, and following sometimes even religious protocol. It doesn't necessarily transform us and move us to a place where we would show others mercy. Uh, Then what would be the catalyst? How would we move then to a place where we would actually tangibly, for real, be a people who loves mercy? As we're going to look at uh, at today, the catalyst, uh, I think, will be seeing that when we have been shown mercy, uh, then we can return and show mercy. Those who have been shown mercy uh, then can show mercy. Uh, We're going to be looking at Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. Now, Pastor Tom told us the page of his Bible where this book is found. Mine's on 846, so that did not help me last week. Hopefully, you found it in your Bible from last week, uh, this minor prophet that we uh, have been looking at. Of course, uh, the verse that we've been concentrating on, Micah 6, 8, that we would do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. And that's in our text, but piled on top of Micah 6, 8 uh, are seven other verses that uh, will give us, uh, I think, some meat uh, and some things to think about when we uh, process this idea of what does it mean uh, to love mercy and, and even this, what is the catalyst uh, for us in showing others mercy. Uh, in Micah chapter 6, it's an interesting scene. It's more of a courtroom drama that's going on here in Micah chapter 6. And it starts, uh, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. So in this courtroom drama, God is uh, utilizing Micah as his prosecuting attorney. He's using Micah as his prosecuting attorney. And in verse 2, he says, Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. So we have our prosecuting attorney is Micah. Now, who does God solicit as the witnesses in this courtroom drama? He solicits the mountains and the foundations of the earth. You sort of say, well, that's sort of interesting. Why would he pick those? You know, uh, this earth has seen uh, the history of all of mankind before we got here. And so in that way, there's sort of this all-encompassing sense in which God is calling upon the earth who has seen uh, all of the deeds of mankind. And he calls upon them to be the witnesses uh, in this drama as this court case unfolds. In verse 3, it continues, My people, what have I done to you? What have I done to you? How have I burdened you? He says, answer me. Now, why is God... Uh, asking this question. He said, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. Because in this courtroom drama, uh, Micah, in the book of Micah, he's covering different segments of time. And so Micah has seen uh, different things going on in the life of God's people. And half of the kingdom was taken captive. Half of the kingdom was taken captive. Israel had been taken captive. Now, if you live in this time and you're in this covenant relationship with God, part of that covenant, part of that promise 
that God had with his people is that he would have his hand of protection upon them. And so when things were going south, when you see a whole uh, half of your kingdom taken captive, you say, something's wrong with the covenant relationship. Something's going on here. Something's not right. And so God is, uh, in this courtroom drama, he's saying, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? He's saying, is there anything in this covenant relationship that I have done wrong? And if so, bring that against me. So if, as we'll see, there's nothing God has done. So where does the fault lie? Well, we're going to find out where the fault lies. Uh, It lies, of course, uh, with the people. But what does God do? How does he address them? In verse 4, he kind of gives the, walks them through history. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam, My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shechem to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. What's the catalyst for us to show mercy? The catalyst for us to show mercy is that we've been shown mercy. What does God do in this unfolding drama? He lays before them time after time these uh, monumental moments in the life of God's people where he's shown them mercy. He saw in Egypt that they had been slaves, the harsh treatment, and he brings this to mind. He wants them to know, to recall what has gone on in the past. They've been shown a tremendous amount of mercy and as God's hand lovingly led them out of Egypt, out of this captivity, out of this place where they were oppressed and beaten down. And then he says, but I know you need someone to lead you. And so he provides leadership. He gives them Moses and Aaron and Miriam, of course, not perfect leadership, but he provides leaders for them. He takes them uh, and says, look, when people wanted to curse you, when people wanted uh, to speak evil over you, I reversed their curses and turned them into blessings. That's what verse 5 is about. My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted. He wanted Balaam to speak these curses over God's people so that bad things would happen to God's people. Well, every time Balaam uh, spoke, what happened? The reverse happened. He spoke blessing. Uh, over the people. And so they walked into more goodness, uh, greater goodness of God. And so he reversed evil plans. Remember uh, your journey from Shechem to Gilgal. What's that? That's the crossing of the Jordan. When the rivers were highest, God uh, halted the waters and allowed God's people to move towards the promised land. And the promised land was this place where God was going to pour out blessing. So what is God doing in this unfolding of this courtroom drama? He's walking them through what would capture their heartstrings and ways in which he has shown them mercy time and time again. Now, if we were to talk about what is most maybe prominent to us in our own hearts that where we have been shown mercy, where would we look as a people? Right back here. Right? We would look to the cross. We would look to the cross. That's the place that would probably tug at our heartstrings to where we have seen mercy demonstrated uh, in a very, very powerful way. 
It's the cross that we would look. Grace is what gives us what we don't deserve. Mercy keeps us from receiving what we do deserve. And that all happened at the cross. Grace gives us what we don't deserve, a relationship, a connection when we shouldn't. And mercy keeps us from receiving what it is that should be poured out upon us. And that is where we look. That becomes a catalyst for us. We've been shown mercy and we can look to the cross and see that. And so then uh, we might be able to show others mercy. There's this quote uh, from uh, writer Anne Lamont. Having a merciful heart means your heart has been softened by the meat tenderizer of grace so that even if somebody is wrong or has wronged you, you feel mercifully towards them. Shown mercy so that we can show mercy. In that Princeton study, the parable of the Good Samaritan, I want to look there uh, for a moment. If you want to flip over in your Bible to Luke chapter 10, we're not going to read the whole thing. Uh, For people who have studied the Bible for years, it's a familiar passage. Uh, You might be here for the first time. You've never opened up a Bible at all, but you've probably heard the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's quite uh, familiar Uh, to us. But in this story, uh, we have this mercy in action shown to us. And Jesus is having this conversation uh, with this teacher. And the teacher is trying to figure out, what is it that I need to have eternal life? And so they go through this dialogue uh, of what does it mean to have eternal life? And the, uh, the religious teacher says, well, love God and and love your neighbor. And Jesus says, you've got it. Yeah, you're right on. That's it. That's it. Uh, Except um, uh, that isn't it. And he wanted to further justify himself. He says, well, then what does it mean? Uh, Who's my neighbor? And so then Jesus takes him uh, and walks him through this parable. And he says, there's a coughing man (laughs) uh, that's going to be on the pathway. Now, there's a man that was robbed, beaten, and left for dead. Uh, It was a Jew who was lying there, and three people walk by. There's a priest who walks by, and he does nothing. There's a Levite who walks by, who also does nothing. And then uh, the story gets shocking, because this Samaritan, who the Jews and the Samaritans, like, they, uh, they wouldn't give regard to one another. And in verse 33 we see what the Samaritan does. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Did you catch that? When he saw him, he didn't see a Jew that he didn't like lying there. He saw a man lying there in need. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Mercy feels... Mercy feels. Mercy hits us. It, it, it strikes at something in our hearts. It stirs compassion. That's what mercy does. It strikes uh, at us when we see somebody that's in need. And the reality is, this Samaritan shouldn't have stopped, had no reason to stop. But he felt something because he didn't just see a Jew lying there. He saw a person lying there. And it moved him. And it moved him. Part of 
being merciful is that we feel. It's that our hearts are struck. I kind of ask myself, well, what are some of the greatest hindrances to feeling? What are some of the greatest hindrances to us being struck? And the first one that I thought of was this idea that we dehumanize people. We dehumanize people. If we can get, if we can dehumanize them, then we don't have to treat them very well. Now, we can look through history and see some tremendous atrocities where the dehumanization of human beings was so egregious that we would all call foul, right? But the reality is, for each one of us, we dehumanize people by degrees. And all you need to do to not act mercifully is to dehumanize somebody just this much. And you might use the yardstick of even yourself because like, if they're just, if they do something just a little worse than you, then you can dehumanize them and you don't have to treat them with dignity or with respect. You don't have to see them then really as a human being made in the image of God. And we're groomed that way. We're trained that way because even as we judge people, what are we doing in our judgment? We're dehumanizing them. And so then that gives us the right to walk by on the other side of the road or to step over them. And it's not just the egregious things that have happened in our world. We do it. We do it ourselves. And so then mercy doesn't feel anything because we've dehumanized them. I think a key here is how we view people. Do we see them as made in the image of God? Even the people who don't agree with you? Are they still made in his image? You know? I mean, we're in a climate today, there's all kinds of crazy going on, and our political views and everything else. And we can dehumanize people just enough that we don't have to give them regard, that we don't even have to listen to them or pay them any heed. One of the greatest hindrances to feeling is our dehumanizing of people. The second area where I think uh, some of our greatest hindrances to feeling and having uh, mercy or compassion hit us is unhealed hurts. Unhealed hurts. Uh, where mercy has not flowed into our own lives, into the most critical areas of our, our lives, you will struggle to show mercy. Now, I'm not saying that you don't know that God is merciful, but what I'm saying is in these areas, there are critical and big areas of our own lives where the mercy of God hasn't flooded, where the love of God hasn't met us. Now, we would theologically pass the exam. We do look to the cross and say, his grace and mercy is abundant, it's there. But in these areas of our lives, uh, and a lot of them, you know, we know that we might have some hurts in our lives, but we haven't received compassion. We haven't, we haven't had somebody listen to our story. And if mercy hasn't flooded in, then we're going to have a very difficult time feeling for other people. Because when there's a hurt, it, it sort of coats our soul. And then we can't feel. A huge part of my Christian journey has been uh, awakening the feeling factor in my life. It was not, it was gone. Life events and, you know, I, I had learned how not to feel. And if you don't feel, you can't, you can't be compassionate. 
And the journey of my life has been, is been a journey of learning how to feel again and, and to, to receive compassion and the love of others into these areas where no one's listened to this story before. Really listened. And that became a significant hindrance. And I saw it in my parenting, my lack of compassion upon my children. Uh, I could see it. I could see in the harsh manner in which I would treat them. Just even, you know, it's just, there's a little stick there. And the Lord just, I remember him saying, that's how, that's how you treat you. You're not compassionate to you. How the heck are you going to be compassionate uh, to your children? And so there's a significant area, I think, if we're to be a compassionate people, that in a deep way, in some of the deepest places of who we are, the mercy of God floods into those places and uh, heals even some of our own hurts. Mercy feels. I think one of the other hindrances to feeling is religion. It's religion. It's actually church. In the text, in verse 6 of Micah 6, uh, the courtroom drama continues. God, of course, has Mike as his prosecuting attorney. He has his witnesses there. He lovingly walks them through this merciful grace. Uh, but then sort of the defense comes. What's the defense of the people? The defense of the people is church. It's religion. Here's what they say. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? What are they saying? They're saying, hey, we're, we're doing the, the prescription. We're following the prescription. And I think that's one of our hindrances to showing mercy is we're following the prescription. The height of being a good Christian is that you, you know everything about the Bible and there, there's a religious way to live life that hinders us, in fact. And what does God say? And that's where the verse that we've been focusing on comes in. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. God, were those prescriptions in the religious life? Yes, they were. They were. But they had gotten in the way and God goes just kind of bigger than that. He says, you're not even a people that, you don't even see what's going on. And so that becomes a hindrance to us is the religious life. But if we are to feel, mercy feels, and when we do, when mercy feels, then it moves us to what happens uh, in verse 35 of Luke chapter 10. Look what the Samaritan does. He feels, he sees the man and has pity on him, and then he moves to action. He went to him, it says, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. Now, that's pretty good. Verse 34, you say, okay, that's action. He felt and he moved to action. If that was all that was in the Bible, the good Samaritan would still be a good Samaritan. He's really a great Samaritan because verse 30, uh, because then it goes on into verse 35. Then the next day he took two denarii 
and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. He went above and beyond. He took care of his needs. He went out of his way. Mercy compelled him to action, to move. And when we see people's struggle, when we see their difficulty, when we see what's going on in their lives, then are we moved? And we step in and do something. Now, the troubling thing as I have looked at the book of Micah, uh, even as a whole, was this question, why doesn't God act sooner? Right? If mercy acts, if mercy acts, then why doesn't God act sooner? Because in the course of the book of Micah, uh, the half of the kingdom was captured. And you think, why doesn't God move sooner? Why doesn't he respond to you know, all the people that were suffering during this time? Why, why didn't God move? And there is the reality uh, that there is not an immediate bounce back when we sin or as a people they're, they're living in a place that's displeasing to God. There isn't an immediate bounce back. When you think of some time in the last weeks that you, just feel, you know in your heart you've, you've stepped over the line, were you zapped? Were you immediately judged? Were you, were you, you know, did God smite you? No, he did not. There's not an immediate bounce back on our sin, whether it's personal, even as a people, that there's this space of time that God grants that we might wake up, that we might see. And even through, uh, Micah was just one of the prophets that was sending messages to God's people to wake up and to realize. He also sent Isaiah, Amos, Hosea, others. There, were, there was this constant message of wake up. And you say, why doesn't God act sooner on behalf? There were people hurting. There were people suffering. He was giving time for people to be responsive. He was sending people as well to give that message. He gives us time to wake up. But you know, there comes a point at which uh, we only respond when the kaboom happens, when things blow up. And God was merciful. And even in his judgment, do you realize he's merciful? Even in the kaboom, the kaboom is merciful. Because if the kaboom doesn't happen, you risk losing your entire soul. And sometimes when we don't hear and we don't hear and we don't hear and we don't hear and years have gone by, then the kaboom happens. It happens in individual lives. Sometimes it can happen to a whole people. And sadly, in chapter 7 of Micah, Micah laments because the kaboom happened. It happened. And I thought, you know, even in the kaboom, God is merciful because he's still trying to say, see me, hear from me. You know that song we like to sing uh, where mercy triumphs over judgment, right? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Uh, That is true. But often that mercy, even though it flows through his judgment to wake us up, it comes after. In a sense, God forces us to see things. He forces us to wake up. And it's not that he closes a blind eye and says, oh, it's okay. That's not mercy. Mercy doesn't say it's okay. Mercy says, now that you see it, now that you're aware of it, now that you're willing to face it, now that you're willing to understand and turn to me, I'm here. 
I'm not casting you out forever. And those hopes are throughout uh, the book of Micah as well. Mercy feels, mercy acts, and because we've been shown mercy, then we uh, become people who can show mercy. I wonder ways in which God might want you to step in and see the coughing man on your path. There are people in our world that are hurting. Come August, the first part of August, we're going to be uh, helping those who are fatherless. We'll be having uh, some foster care people here that first weekend in August, and maybe God would tap on your heart and you say, you know, there's, that's the coughing person laying in the street, and God moves upon you to begin to think about and consider maybe God would have you be uh, somebody who helps out in the area uh, of fostering. Um, Linda leads a wonderful ministry called Kids Hope, and it's, it's our ministry to those who are in the schools who need somebody to look up to. Uh, Linda was in the other service, and I said, Linda, how, what do you need, you know? Do you need double what you got? Could you use double the amount of people you had in the past year to come alongside a young child who has a very, un, most of them unstable situations, maybe no fathers around, maybe no mothers around? And she just shook her head and said, yeah, I could, I could use double. You know, these are some ways in which I think God can use us to show mercy. Um, what about uh, even in your everyday life? Is there a lonely person in your neighborhood? You, you know that house because no car ever shows up there. Nobody ever walks in that door. You know maybe they can't get out. Maybe it's somebody of age. Um, they don't have any friends left maybe. Uh, maybe it's somebody with a disability and they can't. Uh, could you meet loneliness? Could you meet somebody who's lonely? I guarantee you in your workplace, Nobody listens to anybody anymore. It's a very lost art. My guess is your coworkers are lonely even though they're surrounded by a sea of people. Just like you today, you might feel lonely sitting here in a sea of people. And you say, you know, if somebody sat down to listen and just said, hey, you mentioned this. Tell me about it. And that was it. I think uh, we would begin to show mercy. And the way this works is, because in my own heart, uh, overall, I don't view myself as a terribly merciful person, but it has grown. You know, when you open the door a little bit and compassion flows into your own life, then you say, there's some room there to show mercy. But as that opens up a little, then there's a little bit more. And I am more aware today than I was even a few years ago to be even interested in, in justice or, or mercy, you know? But it's got to start somewhere for each of us. 